Hello everyone, Dr. Alan Mishra here with another edition of the Vitality Explorer podcast. Thank you for listening. Our purpose, as always with the podcast, is to optimize vitality one person at a time. We'd like to start off the podcast typically with a quote. This one is from Lily Tomlin, and here it is. Quote, for fast-acting relief, try slowing down. For fast-acting relief, try slowing down. So our, our purpose is to provide uh, readers of the Vitality Explorer Substack site and listeners to this podcast with the latest scientific information about how to improve your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. And this is based on science whenever possible. We have three topics uh, for us to cover this week. The first one is Blue Zone Blood Biomarkers. Say that real fast. Blue Zone Blood Biomarkers. Second is the top three lessons I learned after celebrating 25 years at Stanford in the Menlo Clinic. And the final one is Job Stress Doubles the Risk of Heart Disease. The core principles by which this podcast and the, and the writings I do on the Vitality Explorer Substack site is that Vitality is a skill and vitality is a gift you can only give yourself by taking ownership over your decisions. So the, the reason we do this and how we break it down to three specific actionable things per week is to provide everyone who is listening to this podcast with something specific and actionable they can consider to enhance their vitality. And in that context, let's jump right into that first one, that blue zone blood biomarkers. Um, so trying to understand uh, from a study that looked at the blood of vital people aged 100 and older. Now, blue zones we've talked about before. They are communities where a significant percentage of people live beyond 100 years. And the concept of looking for a blue zone biomarker was recently uh, uh, published in a study of 45,000 people who were followed for decades. So this is a big study, 45,000 is a huge number for any study. And the people in this study were not in one of the popularized blue zones, but they were from Sweden. And this study found that 2.7% of the participants reached their 100th birthday. So they, what they did is then they looked at the blood biomarkers of the people who were um, over 100 and who were under 100. Here's the, here's the title of the, of the study. Uh, blood, quote, blood biomarker profiles and exceptional longevity comparison of centenarians versus non-centenarians in a 35-year follow-up of the Swedish Morris cohort. Okay, So what they did is they looked at 12, 12 biomarkers, and these were all based in blood. Biomarkers can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It could be something like your salivary cortisol. It could be something like heart rate variability. These were all blood-based ones, and the markers were chosen because of their connection to things like inflammation, your metabolism, your liver function, your kidney function, malnutrition, and anemia. And all 12 had been previously linked to aging or, or, or mortality. So the blood markers, uh, I think you can look at all the details on the Vitality Explorer Substack site, including the references, but they were total cholesterol, glucose, four liver-related markers. These are sort of like liver enzymes, like ALT, ASAT, GTT, and LD. Uh, albumin, which is sort of the major protein in your blood, creatine or creatinine. 
excuse me, uh, which is a marker of kidney function, uric acid, iron, and total iron binding capacity. So these markers were then, again, smashed up against people who were 100 or older or people who are less than 100. And then they categorized this, the, the, the markers into five different groups. So they call them quintiles, but very low, low, medium, medium, high, medium, and very high. And then they looked at the distribution across everybody. And each biomarker was then... Um, tried to be statistically analyzed for the chance or the likelihood of living to 100. And so here's what was kind of fascinating is the centenarians had higher levels of total cholesterol and iron and lower levels of glucose, creatinine, uric acid, TIBC, that's total iron binding capacity, and liver enzymes. So the graphs you can see up on the Substack site. And the finding of higher cholesterols being associated with living to 100 was, was frankly quite surprising. Uh, and But interestingly, consistent with previously published literature. And one of the quotes from the paper is the following. So, quote, we found that a higher cholesterol level was associated with higher chance of becoming a centenarian, uh, which stands in contrast to the clinical guidelines regarding cholesterol levels but in line with previous studies showing that high cholesterol is generally favorable for mortality in very old age. So it's important to say that this is, this is crucial. This is a crucial component of the paper here. Um, and, and what they found was that high levels of cholesterol were predictive of death in people 39 to 79. So you're not out of jail. You can't just eat cake and steak, okay? <laughs> but uh, so if you're between the ages of 39 and 79, high cholesterol does increase your risk of death, but not over 80. So here's here's another quote from the paper, and this is also based on things like having high glucose and higher other blood markers. Uh, the concept that you can you can modify some of these, I think, is important. And the quote is for is, is as follows: "Quote the differences in in biomarkers more uh, uh, more than one day decade prior to death suggests that genetic and or lifestyle factors." reflected in these biomarker levels may play a role for exceptional longevity. So this is also in the context of what they found about CRP, and we've talked about this before. That's also known as C-reactive protein, and that's one measure of a body's overall inflammation. And the findings were consistent with that previous research where lower levels of inflammation are tightly connected to living longer and more vibrant lives. So there's some, some graphs up on the Vitality Explorer Substack site that go over all of these findings, but here's sort of this analysis. The paper that we just talked about provides, I think, strong evidence that there are these 12 blood biomarkers, you might call them blue zone biomarkers, that are connected with living to 100 or longer. And things like optimizing our glucose levels, our liver enzymes, and our kidney function, I think are partially, at least partially under our control. Okay, not everything. So there's some, some genetic components to everyone. But if you eat moderately, drink moderately, keep our blood pressure in control, all of these can help contribute to optimizing these blood biomarkers. So it's not super well known, but if you have really high blood pressure, that could affect your kidney function, uh, obviously affect other parts, specifically your heart and your brain. But trying, trying to, to, to modify some of these things that might affect some of these blood biomarkers, again, is under our control. The one that we, we've been really hammering home on Vitality Explorers is inflammation. And, and one of the things that we, we haven't really talked too much about, but if you, you, can, you can avoid developing at least some chronic inflammation by living at or near your ideal weight. Um, so that's one thing that's really important to think about uh, if you want to live to 100.
Okay. So the interesting finding, again, of higher cholesterol not predicting death after 80, I think needs to be investigated more. Um, I do think if I make it to age 80, I might start eating cake and steak because I might my, my cholesterol will be a little higher. Uh, I, I'm, snar- I'm saying that in a snarky fashion, obviously. But I would encourage people who uh, are interested in this topic to look at the Vitality Explorer Substack site. Always check with your personal physician prior to making any decisions about biomarkers. Uh, but correcting suboptimal ones as early as possible could lead many of you listening to this to the land of centenarians or hundred years or older. Uh, if you're an expert in this area, please um, you know, post your comments on the Vitality Explorer Substack site. Again, this is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. It's not also meant to diagnose, treat, or prevent any disease. Um, okay, that, again, the, the study we just looked at is blood biomarker profiles and exceptional longevity, a comparison of basically 100-year-olds versus not, not 100-year-olds. Um, I found that very interesting. It was published in one of the Nature journals. Next thing we're going to talk about is the top three lessons I learned by uh, being at the same place for 25 years, and that's the Stanford uh, Hospital uh, and Clinic System, and specifically the Menlo Clinic, which is where I've been working. And this past weekend, I was celebrated as somebody who's been there for 25 years. Uh, I can't believe how quickly that's passed, but I I, I must must uh, pause for a few minutes and say I'm incredibly blessed to have been at the same place and enjoyed and actually loved what I've been doing for that time frame. And I wanted to share my top three lessons. Number one, it's really important to know and own your mission. Number two, celebrate the people who help you on your journey. Number three, give back to your profession to serve the next generation. So when I was uh, in my orthopedic surgery residency program, you can do everything from hand surgery to spine surgery to pediatric orthopedics. But it was very clear to me early on that I wanted to go into sports medicine. And when I first started reading the American Journal of Sports Medicine, which is the top journal in the field, I would, I would pick that up before I would read Sports Illustrated or do anything else. I was fascinated and am fascinated by, fascinated by the musculoskeletal system and specifically by how we can stay active and involved in the sports that we love. So it, it has staggered me how much time has passed. But it also delights me that I still enjoy caring for my patients and trying to figure out what's wrong with them and try to identify how to help them. Um, And I I really want to be thankful to Stanford and the Menlo Clinic, uh, all the people I've worked with. But here are the lessons I've learned. And I wanted to share these with you as, I hate to admit this, but as a elder statesman now who's been around for a long time. uh, The first is to know and own your mission. And, and here's how I've defined my mission. My mission is to honor the people who seek out my care with my best effort. Let me say that again. My mission as an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist is to honor the people who come to see, see me and absolutely put out my best effort. My, my goal, whenever I see somebody initially, is to identify the root cause of their problem to make a precise diagnosis. You cannot have a pr- precise treatment unless you have a precise diagnosis. So after you figure out whatever the diagnosis is, then the job morphs into executing, in my opinion, on the least invasive, least res- risky treatment for the patient that has the best chance uh, of helping that person w- in a timely fashion. So least risky, least invasive, best chance in a timely fashion. 
So knowing this mission and never, and I mean never, ever, as possibly, as best I can, never, ever compromising on excellence has hopefully served my patients for, uh, for many decades now, at least two and a half decades. And part of that comp- never compromising on excellence is to figure out what the best next step is for, for the patients and for me. We've talked a little bit about this before. And what I can tell you is the best next step is almost always the more difficult one. There's no getting around. There's no easy way to get better. You know, part of it's on on uh, me as the uh, the physician and surgeon to, to identify the best next step from a medical perspective. But I also expect my patients to take some responsibility uh, for their recovery for the things that they are that are under their control. That can include you know just following up and going to physical therapy or doing their home based exercises or even just going to get the MRI if I suggest that's the best next step. Um, that's 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 again under the the idea of knowing and owning your your mission is my first lesson. The second is celebrating the people who have helped you. And it's not me that's taking care of tens of thousands of patients over 25 years. It's a team of people. And let me just articulate some of the people who have helped me. There have been hundreds of my medical and surgical colleagues who have helped me over the years. And there are, there are people who help me every single day, including every nurse, every medical assistant, you who have used their expertise in the care of our patients. And I don't say my patients, I say our patients. There's also surgical techs in the operating room, radiology technicians, whose value is often not recognized and not appreciated. Anybody who draws blood, also known as phlebotomists, laboratory technicians, patient transporters, these people all work behind the scenes to help people in, in and out of the hospital. And then finally, and, and, and you know, these are super important people as well, as like patient service representatives, those people who answer the phones or schedule appointments, the cleaning, the maintenance people, the security professionals, all of these people help us care for our patients. And in my particular case, I also have to recognize my wife and daughter who have loved and supported me for all of this time. Um, and if you want to see a couple pictures of some people I've worked with, they're up online in the Vitality Explorer Substack site. I try to celebrate the people I work with every single day. Now, how do I do that? I recognize what they've done to help me. Um, they certainly hear from me if it's not going well. I should, I should say that as well. Okay, so I'm, I am um, for better or for worse a perfectionist. But when they do something well, I am specific about why I appreciate them, and I treat every single person as an equal part of the team. Okay, uh, and then what's I think important and what's actually been valuable is just to schedule some fun outside of work. Um, I, I had one medical assistant I worked with for 19 years. His name was James. He's one of the world's best humans. We played on a softball team at Stanford one summer. We actually won the championship. Uh, we would often go out once or twice a month and get a cocktail after work and just really enjoy each other's company and then appreciate the opportunity to take care of other people. And that's one of the things that I try to recognize is that it is a privilege to care for another human who is in pain or who's in need of my help or our help. So when you think of it in that way, or when I, I guess I've thought about that in that way for my entire career, I still don't think of it as a job. I think of it as a calling. I think of it as a privilege. And I do whatever I can to help my patients uh, in any way. Now, the final one, the final lesson, okay, second lesson was celebrating the people around. The final lesson is to give back. Give back to that profession and serve the next generation. And here's something that I never expected because I did not, 
I absolutely did not like to do research when I was in medical school, well, a little bit in medical school, but way less in, orth in or my orthopedic surgery residency. I was frankly overwhelmed. We, we had to do one or two papers per year, but I did not like the research component of it. But I found amazingly over the course of my time working at, at Menlo and Stanford that complex medical research is something I really like. And I try to do this because when you contribute to the worldwide body of knowledge, you can potentially identify a scientific truth. And my work on platelet-rich plasma uh, for tendinopathy and other disorders has hopefully been meaningful and helped patients far beyond my own practice. Um, and connecting with my colleagues all over the world because of the research that I published and presented was absolutely unexpected bonus of conducting research. And I now cherish these relationships. And teaching residents and fellows is another thing and medical students uh, at Stanford that is honestly, it's part of a dream job for me, helping shape how they learn and helping them learn how to diagnose and treat patients and, and treat it, uh, treat patients with, uh, you know, honor and dignity is something, it's a responsibility I frankly cherish. And I take it very, very seriously. I do my best to help them uh, and challenge them to become um, better people, and they challenge me to become a better physician and surgeon every single day. Um, the final thing I've been doing now is mentoring students, and that has absolutely rekindled a fire within me in a way that I never expected. I, I thought for sure this would just be a time suck to help other, other young students, uh, but now I can report back to the older audience that's listening to this that when you mentor young people, um, you get a lot back, but you also start to realize that our future is in great hands. There's a new generation of people who are dedicating their lives to helping other people, and they're super smart. They have robust intellectual talent, and they're gonna help us find transformative solutions for difficult problems. So thank you for indulging me and in listening to my sort of personal celebration of 25 years of working as an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Uh, you can again see some pictures and uh, more of this on the Vitality Explorer Substack site if you want to. Um, um, you know, let, let's finish this one with uh, the idea of stress, job stress doubles the risk of heart disease. Um, so this is kind of a tough one, but it's a really important one to dive into the details of. And again, you can look on uh, online at vitalityexplorers.substack.com to find the references but it's pretty clear that stress at work is killing us. And I think we need to address it straight on uh, with some substantial reforms in order to live our most vital lives. So all of us have stress at work, but a newly published paper helped recognize the link, the connection between job-related stress and heart disease. And the title of this paper was Psychosocial Stressors at Work and Coronary Artery Disease or Coronary Heart Disease in Men and Women, 18-Year Prospective Cohort Study of Combined Exposure. So this, this particular study looked at 6,465 people with about an equal number of men and women. Excuse me, the average age was about 46 years. The men had a higher number of comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, and cholesterol. But here's the primary finding in that study, quote, men exposed to both job strain and effort reward imbalance had double the risk of developing heart disease compared with those that were not exposed. So I was kind of like, okay, what is job strain? What is effort reward imbalance? 
these are sort of technical you know terms in terms of this this particular area of research so i had to very carefully read this paper and i think it did an excellent job of breaking down job stress into several different categories and so again you can see this up online but job strain is something where there's high demand and low control passive jobs are low demand low control active jobs are high demand but high control and low job strain low demands and high control so the other the other thing they talked about was effort reward imbalance so i'm like okay effort reward imbalance is kind of what, what it sounds like and that that is sort of a theory that asserts that an imbalance between effort at work and rewards can be detrimental to health and job 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 strain whether it's high low or somewhere in between focuses on sort of the task characteristics you can have high demand and low control for instance while effort reward imbalance focuses on socioeconomic factors things like salary promotions and job stability so the paper went through all of this and then they were smashing it up against the risk of developing um, potential heart disease and they found that they were both connected to it the paper found substantially higher risk of developing heart disease in men they were ex exposed to um, job strain and effort reward imbalance. The interesting thing is the paper did not find increased risk of heart disease for women that were exposed um, to this. So again, they, they had some specific findings that I think are important for us to discuss, and then we'll go into the analysis of it. Um, so number one, here's another finding. Men with job strain or effort reward imbalance or one or the other had a 49% increased risk of developing heart disease. Men with both of those job strain and effort reward imbalance had a 103 risk increased risk which is more than double the risk of developing heart disease for women the data was un unfortunately inconclusive the exact reasons by which that was not inconclusive was not really identified in the paper they speculated that it was related to the protective um, value of estrogen or perhaps the lower rates of comorbidity in women um, they went on to talk about a couple things that they recommended, and these are two quotes from the paper. Quote, over the course of professional life, exposure to psychosocial stressors at work in combination with more traditional risk factors can promote the occurrence and progression of coronary atherosclerosis. So that's coronary artery disease. Here's another quote. Psychosocial stressors at work can also predict a cardiovascular event through uh, sympathetic nervous system activation, atherosclerotic plaque, that's a little plaque inside your arteries, uh, can disrupt and drive platelet activation, which is triggered by increased heart rate, blood pressure, and coronary vasoconstriction, or narrowing of the coronary arteries, uh, constricting. So the analysis for this paper is pretty straightforward. It provides powerful evidence that stress at work contributes to the development of heart disease in men and possibly women. And leaders who are out there listening to this, I think it's crucial to focus on reducing job stress by empowering employees, especially those employees that have a high demand job. And seeking to eliminate that, that terrible effort reward imbalance is another task on the plate of leaders that care about the vitality of their employees. So I'm not an expert on the, the science of this, but I am an expert on the level on the concept of high levels of stress because as you just heard, I've been doing I've been an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist for 25 years. I took more than a decade of level one trauma call at Stanford, and I certainly know what high demand 
and low control is in, in, in a job because that's kind of what I have lived for a long period of time. Um, loss of control at work massively contributes to work stress and effort reward imbalance. So it's, I think it's an interesting concept for people to opine on. If you have comments, you can put them on here uh, on the Vitality Explorer Substack site online. Uh, but I think for people who are going to be put in high pressure situations, high demand situations, or any def any job situation, have some sense of control decreases the risk of burnout. Um, also, knowing that um, you know sentient leaders should really try to look at this. They should really try to reduce that job stress and effort reward imbalance. Um, Thank you for listening to this last one, which I think is really, really important for us to, to have a conversation about. Um, job stress, specifically effort reward and balance are things that we need to address more in the workplace if we're going to lead our most vital lives because we spend a lot of time at work. Don't forget Lily Tomlin's you know, quote at the beginning of this, and that is to for that was for fast acting relief, try slowing down. That's one way to reduce your risk. Uh, the things, other things we talked about were the blue zone, blood biomarkers, and my top three lessons uh, after 25 years at Stanford and the Menlo Clinic. Uh, as always, I want to make sure everybody understands how much I appreciate anyone who's listening to this. I hope you understand our goal. Our purpose with this podcast is to optimize vitality one person at a time. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please share this uh, widely with your friends, family, and colleagues. I, I hope you have enjoyed this week's Vitality Explorer podcast. And until next time, I hope you enjoy your week and get out there somewhere in the world and dare to be vital. Thank you very much for listening.